You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. We're really thrilled to have you all here um, at ODI tonight. Uh, it's a really exciting occasion for me uh, because I worked very closely with Raj um, and he continues to do amazing things and we're gonna get into that uh, in a couple of minutes. Uh, it's also uh, exciting uh, because today we have launched uh, our annual review uh, and uh, you might see a copy of it outside, uh, but more importantly, you should go online because we have done our first ever digital first version and it's far more interesting on the web with cool videos and graphics and exciting stories about basically how we think about how you translate big ideas into impact on the ground uh, for people who need it most. So please go and have a look. Uh, we also have a large audience with us tonight that is not in this room, uh, but is online through a number of means. Uh, they're going to be reaching out to us. I have uh, this iPad here, which is going to give me some questions throughout. So if you're watching online, welcome. Please do send in your questions. We're also using uh, hashtag tonight, global uh, dev, hashtag global dev should be up there. Um, and uh, we have Raj's uh, hash, uh, uh, Twitter handle up there too. Uh, so you can tweet at him if he says something funny or something not funny. Um, uh, but um, let me introduce Raj. Uh, I have known Raj for a number of years now. Um, and he assumed office as the Rockefeller Foundation's new president on the 1st of March of this year, uh, leading what is one of the oldest and most uh, influential philanthropic institutions, uh, not only in the US, but uh, in the world. And I'll let Raj talk a little bit more about Rockefeller, uh, what he hopes to do there, and some of the things uh, that he's accomplished. Uh, but he's had some other interesting jobs, too. Um, President Obama appointed Raj uh, to be the administrator for USAID uh, at the end of 2009 and confirmed by the Senate uh, just in time uh, for the Haiti earthquake. Uh, how many days in office before that earthquake started? About 10. About 10 days. Uh, and we, we'll come back to that, but it was, a, I think, a phenomenal trial by fire in what is already uh, one of the most challenging uh, and important jobs uh, there is out there. Um, Raj not only served in that role, uh, but because of, uh, I think, that the trust and importance that the president had in him and the importance that the president placed on development as part of his tenure, uh, Raj sat in the National Security Council, uh, participated in debates on things great and small, um, throughout the time uh, uh, that he served there for over five years um, and also had a profound impact um, on the president's agenda. I think some of the most important things that President Obama talked about and that he said that he was proudest of were things that often came out of the work that Raj was doing on issues like food security, science, technology, and innovation, um, uh, and, um, and powering Africa, which uh, continues to be something that Raj uh, is deeply involved in. Uh, when Raj left USAID, an independent auditor called Results for America rated USAID the largest, uh, the, the, the top large US government agency uh, that actually takes uh, evidence and turns it into policy. 
uh, which is of course something that we work on every day and we think should be the mainstream, but unfortunately it often isn't in government and that was a, a really big achievement. Um, President Obama uh, once remarked uh, to uh, a crowd that Raj's career made the president wonder whether he had achieved enough in his life. Um, uh, but President Obama also had a saying, uh, which was, go big or go home. Um, and if that translates well uh, to this audience, it means, you know, if you're not in a position like this to take on the biggest challenges facing us, then step aside and let someone else try it. Um, and in my experience, there are some people who dream big. Uh, there are some people who get things done. Uh, and Raj is really a rare combination uh, of those things. Um, uh, but before you think I'm being too kind to Raj, um, uh, let me say that sometimes going big often meant falling hard. Uh, in fact, you know, some of my most powerful memories uh, of working closely with Raj were decisions uh, to take some big risks. Um, and taking big risks uh, in jobs like that means having some really hard, often unpleasant conversations with even bigger people. Um, and I remember I have like this, this kind of uh, montage sequence in my head of sitting in meetings with Raj, with generals and ministers, uh, maybe more than one national security advisor. Um, lecturing us about, uh, about maybe getting too big uh, for our britches. Um, but it was really a, a great pleasure to see what it means to not only have somebody enter a position of responsibility, but to really kind of take it to the max and really see how far you can push things. Uh, because ultimately, what USAID was there for, what Rockefeller is there for, what we're there for is to make a big difference um, in the lives of of, of people who, who really need that support. Um, so, Raj, I'm really excited that you're here, and you. we're going to get to engage in a little bit of a conversation, and then we're going to open it up uh, to the good people here and those online uh, to engage with us. So let, let me start with a big question for you. Um, at the end of 2015, in the middle of 2015, it seemed as though the world were coming together had accomplished something kind of extraordinary. You had this new sustainable development goals. You had the Paris Agreement. Um, it seems like we have come a long way since that moment in not entirely positive ways. Um, and when you look at the trajectory from 1990 to 2015 and the reductions in extreme poverty and all the accomplishments that were made, um, I think that we were betting on continuing that trend. And, and now I think a lot of people are wondering, are we, you know, was that an illusion? Are we going to continue the, the forward progress? Um, what do you think? Uh, well, ultimately, I think it's up to us. But before I answer that, I just want to say thank you for having me here. Alex, uh, you're a great choice for the Overseas Development Institute. It's an institute that I and you have followed and respected for a very, very long time. And, uh, and so congratulations on your new post here and, and best wishes. And uh, Alex can tell all of those stories about the National Security Council because we were very much a team uh, working together to try to advance and really live up to the President's goal and, the, and our Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's goal of, of elevating development in the context of how we conducted foreign policy. And that did mean getting into the think of things. So, so thank you. Uh, look, I think I think we have a tendency to take for granted what was accomplished in 2015. Uh, the Sustainable Development Goals, the Paris Climate, Climate Accords, uh, 
were the result of many, many years of demonstrating and building consensus across 190 plus countries uh, that you could both reduce the rate of temperature increase around the world and end extreme poverty uh, so that people don't live in large numbers on a dollar or two dollars of income a day. And I know everyone in this room has a lot of expertise on these topics already, but I find it important for myself and for others to remind all of us that, you know, folks and families that live in those circumstances, still nearly a billion people around the world, uh, are the most climate vulnerable. They're kids, most often girls, are the most vulnerable to all kinds of horrendous actions. Uh, the likelihood that their children will not survive to age five, and if they do, will grow up stunted, is extraordinarily high even today. And the most basic, low-cost set of solutions from improved nutrition to access to food to basic health services uh, and, and a simple but consistent education can transform the lives of those individuals and their families and their communities in, in an extraordinarily powerful way. And, and I think sometimes we're too quick to talk about uh, the goals and the big UN agreements. Uh, those agreements were ultimately saying to the world that we see the world's two biggest common challenges that are not security challenges as climate and poverty. And we believe we're going to come together across public and private sector partners to do something about it at scale. So uh, that was a huge accomplishment. And I think many of us just took for granted that now that that was done, we would all go about implementation uh, to achieve those goals in a really results-oriented way. And uh, no, I don't believe that's just going to happen. I think this what we've seen. Uh, I, I taught for a while at Georgetown University, and I had a slide I'd put up with two economist covers. One was the Brexit vote. The other was the Trump election. And I think both of those are uh, big, powerful statements that so many people feel left out of the progress that is happening on a global basis uh, that our progressive global uh, community simply can't go out and say, OK, we're going to tackle these big goals together because that's important for humanity, which it is, without bringing more people along. So let's talk about the implications of those two covers and a few other things that have happened, the migration crisis in Europe. Um, there is a sense, I think, that some of the wind in the sails uh, in 2015 because of this global political movement that has changed things, has, often, has also caused more questioning about aid and whether that's where tax dollars should be going. Obviously, in the United States, there's a proposal for massive cuts to the aid budget. Uh, there's been a lot of political pressure through the turbulent year here since Brexit around aid spending levels. Europe is facing some of the same challenges. Uh, so it's, it's not just the money, although the money is quite important. We also see sort of a softening maybe of political support for this mission. Yeah, I, I think this is just a mission that's easy to manipulate politically, to be honest. So, you know, uh, in Europe, 
you see the Nordic countries that have been the leaders in terms of the percent of GDP that they spend committed on these goals um, have a pretty steep decline if you actually look at the redirecting of resources to taking care of domestic refugee flows. Uh, that Experts in the room will know more, but feels it, I've heard it's a 20, 25, 30% decline in real assistance to results-oriented development efforts around the world in poor countries external to Sweden or Norway or, or Denmark. Uh, the UK has, you know, we're all watching to see what the UK does. We stood uh, and leveraged the example of the UK as you marched up to 0.7% of GDP. Uh, and did it with the political sophistication and, and real political leadership that I think set a tone for the global community. And in the U.S., it's a disaster. The, uh, there's just no other way to describe it. The, what you hear about is a 30% proposed cut in the Trump budget uh, obscures the fact that that 30% includes the entire operations of the United States State Department. And given that we're not going to shut down a third of our embassies around the world, in practice, the cuts to aid and assistance are 50, 60, 70 percent in some areas. And so at a time when there are four active food security crises and teetering on famines, the United States budget proposes a steep stepping away from our traditional six or seven decade long role as the world's humanitarian leader on food assistance in particular and hunger. Uh, in health, similarly, we're cutting back severely programs on voluntary family planning, on providing maternal uh, and child health support. To your point, the policy uh, changes, which don't get as much attention, will effectively take American leadership on women's health and health of adolescent girls uh, beyond down to zero, it'll be, you know, will be a negative influence uh, as those things play out if they play out as proposed, and uh, and it goes on and on. The McGovern Dole school feeding program, which uh, George McGovern and Bob Dole, two iconic American political leaders from opposite sides of the spectrum, came together and passed through the Senate on a unanimous basis has been, and which feeds uh, millions of young children and provides their school lunch, uh, has been cut to zero. And uh, I visited, before I was even at USAID, I ran a part of the US Department of Agriculture. And Tom Vilsack, our agriculture secretary, and I visited kids in uh, the Kabira slum in Nairobi who came to school to get that cup of porridge for their lunch and the second one to take home to their family. And uh, that cup of porridge cost us something like 12 cents a cup to provide. And you know, uh, the Trump administration wants to end it. So the degree to which American humanitarian leadership is sort of in question right now uh, could not be uh, overestimated. I'd give you one other statistic, that if you took the 15 largest American foundations and used all of their annual giving to fill the gap that the Trump administration has proposed as their cuts, you wouldn't even fill the gap for USAID alone. So the, you know, this is not the kind of problem philanthropy can step in and solve for, nor should it. These are public sector responsibilities. Neither we're going to live in a world where everyone's genuinely on their own, and, and those who are going to be left to starve in refugee camps or on the streets of uh, major cities around the world 
or we have to recreate a politics that allows for uh, the spirit that's been so evident in British leadership on foreign affairs issues over the last 15 years. So that sounds like a good segue to talking about the role of philanthropy yeah. and maybe specifically Rockefeller. So you've been in office five months, four months. Yeah. Uh, um, I know uh, that you've uh, been thinking about uh, what the role of the foundation could and should be, not only vis-a-vis -vis those things, but in a long-term sense. you want to give us a, a taste of, of where you might be going? Sure. Well, we're sorting it out. I guess I'd start by just introducing two colleagues. Uh, one is Olivia Leland, who is here. Olivia, put, put your hand up. Olivia's uh, starting our London presence for the Rockefeller Foundation and, and brings an extraordinary track record of leadership and philanthropic efforts, but also in the public sector at places like the Millennium Challenge account. Uh, and I'm excited for all of you to get to know Olivia and vice versa and help each other out uh, as we try to work more actively with the community here. Uh, and Josh Murphy, a colleague who uh, works with me day to day uh, at the Rockefeller Foundation as well. You know, the foundation is an extraordinary place. It's 104 years of investing in what John D. Rockefeller called scientific philanthropy. The basic idea was, how can you help the most people in the world? It's not uh, just by offering charity to meet immediate needs, uh, but also thinking about what types of science and innovation could be applied strategically over the long term to really lift up the most people. And it were those insights and, and Rockefeller employees like Norman Borlaug, who was, I think, our longest standing employee at 44 years of hmm. uh, engagement uh, that led to the innovations that powered the Green Revolution that moved more than a billion people off the brink of hunger and starvation in Latin America and South Asia and other parts of the world. Uh, those insights led to the modernization of medical practice, both in the United States and abroad. Back in 1913, they put a bunch of philanthropists together on a train and took them through the American South and concluded that it would be in the interest of our nation uh, at a time when the public sector didn't do these things to eradicate hookworm from the American South. And that led to a long history and and global public health starting in the United States. And, uh, and we've had a, a big focus for our, throughout our history on economic issues, creating institutions like the National Bureau of Economic Research and creating the modern national statistical accounting system that led to how America measures its most basic uh, economic output. So uh, I'm honored to get the chance to participate in the next chapter. And we're focused very much on uh, looking at the world and, and applying science, technology, and innovation in ways that could really transform outcomes for global poverty, but also improve how we make jobs more accessible to uh, the working and middle class in the United States. And, and those will be our two main areas of focus going forward. They have been in the past. And we'll continue to invest in efforts to address uh, and build resilience in communities where we work in. I can get into that as well. But I'm, uh, right now we're in a period of figuring it all out, mm. uh, and we'd love to learn from you and work with you as we sort of create the next chapter of what's been a pretty amazing institution that I'm thrilled to be a part of. If you had to say wh what's the next, uh, if you were telling this story in 10 years and 
recounting who the next Norman Borlaug was or the next innovation uh, that you helped to fund. Do you have some guesses on things that you think are going to be transformative in the next decade? Well, we have some active programs that I think are uh, leading to some insights around that. Uh, one is, for example, uh, we all know there are 1.2 billion people around the world that don't have access to power, something you and I worked on pretty intensively in Africa, but also in South Asia and even parts of Latin America. And it turns out, since so many in this room care about inclusive growth and developmental outcomes, uh, that countries that have big discrepancies in power access can experience rapid growth but don't have the same power, powerful outcome of reducing poverty through their growth. And so we think power access enables much more inclusion along the growth path. In that context, we have a great project called Smart Power India, where we're bringing uh, off-grid, rural, uh, solar energy to communities that otherwise don't have grid access and, and really don't have power. And it's incredible, as you've seen, to see what that kind of solution can do for these households. A, a, a mother who is cooking indoors can now get, you know, uh, use power to improve the way they're conducting almost all the activities of daily living. A small business all of a sudden has power and, and lower cost power than diesel generation, which can cost 50, 60 cents a kilowatt hour. Now you get power at 12 to 14 cents a kilowatt hour. It just transforms what's possible economically. Kids who otherwise aren't uh, active after dark can now start reading and studying at night, and you see literacy outcomes and other outcomes go up. And we've pioneered this effort with a group of companies that are trying to make a co viable commercial product that can, in a low-cost and efficient way, build microgrids and bring power to these rural communities in India, but also in, in Africa and other parts of the world. So that's just one example of where innovation can bend the curve of what's possible in fighting extreme poverty um, and do it in a way that you know, is an appropriate role for phil philanthropic risk capital, you mm. know, creating those new solutions that have a chance to end energy poverty around the world. So talk a little bit more about the, the risk capital idea, because you know, as you already said, the phil philanthropic money is not a replacement yeah. either for foreign direct investment, certainly not for money coming from aid agencies, domestic resources, but it can actually play a catalytic role. Um, how do you think about how to use your resources in a way that that get bigger bang for the buck? Uh, and how do you, <laughs> this is a trickier question, but how, how, do, how do you differentiate what, you, what Rockefeller is gonna do from, from others? Well, so on the first, uh, I'll give you an example. We have a project we call 100 Resilient Cities, which works with uh, cities all around the world. 21 are in the United States. And, uh, and we have more than 80 resilience officers that report to mayors that have created these resilient strategies. They, they work on projects related to water management and water access, to public hygiene, uh, to, to building uh, climate adaptation-oriented infrastructure in cities like New Orleans and Norfolk, Virginia, uh, so they're protected from the next storm surge. The amount of leverage we get from that kind of activity is incredible. Uh, we have private businesses that have committed more than half a billion dollars of resources to these cities. In just New Orleans alone, uh, this was because of the BP oil spill and the 
fund that was created, a lot of what was, what was crafted as a resilient strategy for the city of New Orleans, reclaiming a watershed outside of the city so that you're quite literally rebuilding forest and land uh, off the shore of New Orleans to protect it from the next storms. Uh, all of that is now going to be funded by this, by the fund, multi-billion dollar fund, seven and a half billion dollar fund that was created. So those kinds of public-private partnerships that bring people together, create consensus strategies for solving a problem, uh, include private sector financial commitments, and, and I think also include big public sector commitments are kind of how we hope to get leverage to achieve these goals, whether it's ending energy poverty or ending under five child deaths around the world or addressing how to build a sustainable global food system that helps wipe out malnutrition and protein calorie malnutrition in particular. So, uh, so that's part of it. On the second part of the question of how do we differentiate from, other, from others, I don't know that we necessarily need to or want to. I mean, we want to be a great partner with others. In fact, Olivia's project is called the Collaborative for Scaling Social Impact and is a partnership uh, that she's building across, that we're working to build across a range of philanthropic partners to do philanthropy collaboratively. Because I think we learned this together, right, at, at aid and in other settings. Uh, when you get folks working together against a common set of problems, like that's where you get the real energy. During the, the 2012 Camp David uh, G8, for example, we got African presidents together with the CEOs of major food and agricultural businesses and, and led to kind of billions of dollars of new commitments to build out agribusinesses in poorer countries and in doing so uh, reach and measure and count the impact on small-scale farmers in those projects. That's helped lift so many people out of poverty by bringing people together and collaborating as opposed to sort of insisting on being super differentiated. So. Uh, We'll see, but you know, the second part, that might have been a non-conventional answer, but I'm less interested in being differentiated and more interested in as if we together can actually solve and, and achieve the stated sustainable development goals, and if we play a modest part on a handful of those, uh, that's an outcome we can all take pride in. That's a great message. Uh, let me let's go a little bit more on urbanization. Uh, you know, I saw one of those sort of uh, freak you out statistics the other day uh, that the world by 2050 will have gone from about 50 percent to two thirds urbanized, and that in that time frame, two and a half billion more people will be living in cities. And then to make it even more intense, you look at how many of those are coastal cities and sea level rise questions. I mean, that seems like a massive looming challenge that obviously the work that you're talking about speaks to, um, but it's going to take a lot. And I imagine the, the path that we're on right now is not going to get us there. So we got to, as you say, bend the, bend the curve. What, what do you think is going to make that happen, particularly in the more challenging places, whether it's uh, Lagos or other parts of the world? Well, well, so part of what's going to make that happen is political leadership. And what's amazing is to see, uh, I mean, certainly we have 100 mayors in our network. Uh, Mayor Bloomberg has a project with 40 cities that are the climate 40. Uh, it does seem like at a time when our federal or national political leaders 
are clearly stepping back from being the innovators and problem solvers on these types of issues, that at least some mayors are willing to say, look, I'm going to try the best I can given a very practical, pragmatic uh, job that I've got you know, to protect and improve the quality of the city. And uh, so if we can build communities of mayors around the world that are solving these problems, in our 100 Resilient Cities effort, for example, more than half of those cities have prioritized water, water management, especially the lower income countries uh, with cities that are going from 10 or 12 million to 25, 30 million in the time frame you just identified. Uh, these are cities where more than half the population still doesn't have access to proper piped water systems or clean drinking water at an affordable price. So helping cities create resilient infrastructure that actually provides clean drinking water to children, removes waste and manages that effectively, brings new technology to bear on that task, and ideally brings financing from all kinds of partners, from the World Bank to the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank uh, to other institutions that can actually write the big checks to make that happen should be in our common interest and is just one example of what these cities' platforms can achieve. Hmm. It was an interesting thread in several things that you've said about programs like that, which are obviously different a little bit from USAID, which is that it, the, a lot of the challenges that you're talking about, whether it's climate change, uh, we haven't talked about, but pandemics, uh, the future of work and jobs, mm -hmm. um, these are not developing, developed country problems. Yeah. Uh, uh, is, is it time somehow that we get past these distinctions? Because the big challenges seem to kind of confront everybody. Well, I, th I, think so. I think we have officially, right? The Sustainable Development Goals are the first truly global set of goals. And when you look at health disparities in America, for example, uh, especially after what just happened in Charlottesville and the way our president responded, uh, people don't fully appreciate or see the long-term persistent disparities in health that take place in the United States. Infant mortality rates in African-American urban settings in the 50 largest American cities are more than four times what they are in the same suburbs of those cities. And that's crazy, right? We should, that is a, it, it is not consistent with the way the goals are shaped. And it, uh, a great country that is also a wealthy country that also has a $2 trillion healthcare system ought to be able to solve that problem as part of its path to achieving the sustainable development goals. So what I, one thing I've learned by, by visiting our, our Resilient Cities projects is that whether you're in a developed country, so to speak, or a developing country, uh, a lot of these mayors and leaders just want to solve problems. They want to be connected to the tech, tech companies and the infrastructure partners and the financing partners that are able to help them do it. And they really appreciate working with each other to learn from each other to do that. And so I agree. I don't think, I think uh, you, we'll have to rethink you know, what we're talking about when we talk about global development. But I do think it's going to be seeing more commonality than distinction in how we tackle these challenges. Mm. There was an article the other day. I don't know if people saw it. Uh, it was actually in the New York Times uh, on the continuing coverage of what happened here in London with the Grenfell Towers fire. And it pointed out, looking at statistical data, that within the same borough of London, uh, different parts of that borough had a 20-year discrepancy in life expectancy within yeah. one borough. 
Uh, so that's powerful. Um, you were in uh, Ethiopia recently, as yeah. you were starting to say. I want to hear something about that trip, uh, because it is in some ways about the future of the work and the changes in the global economy, but it's also uh, a little bit of a reality check of the world that we're really living in when you look at uh, the world's largest economy, China, and, and the impact that that's now having. Uh, so tell us a little bit of what you saw. Well, just for a little context, we've had at the Rockefeller Foundation a, a really innovative program called Digital, Digital Jobs Africa. And we've helped uh, more than 100,000 people, but in Kenya alone, more than 40,000 people get trained to access digital jobs, whether they are in the community there or uh, ultimately tied to companies that are in the United States or around the world. And we see this explosion of interest, of course, amongst those firms for trained talent that can do computer science and computer programming, these activities. And we all know there's a ton of capacity and young people all over the planet that want to be connected to that fast-moving engine of innovation and employment and work. So that seemed like a pretty powerful way to help create jobs in an environment where we know uh, young people who are unemployed or underemployed uh, have a lead to a lot of challenging consequences for those societies and those communities. Uh, so we saw those projects in Kenya, and I thought they were great projects, uh, but they also felt like maybe relatively modest in scale in the sense that you're reaching tens of thousands of people and you're doing the training. And then we went to Ethiopia and we visited uh, a number of large-scale manufacturing facilities. And what the Ethiopian government has done as part of its Made in Ethiopia or Made in Africa project is basically gone to Chinese provinces and said, look, come, we'll, we'll build for you a manufacturing hub. It'll be close and tied to international trade and transport. We have AGOA, the American Growth and Opportunity Act, so manufactured goods here can go to the Chinese market or the US market or the Chinese market for the US market uh, without additional tariff. And let's together create 10 million new jobs, uh, taking advantage of the price differential of labor between Ethiopia and China. So we're walking through these textile facilities looking at you know, what I'd consider excellent clothing. Uh, my standards are different than probably some of you in London, but you know. Uh, and, and, uh, and we asked the manager there, and I said, well, well, what is the actual labor cost differential? Like you're, you're putting hundreds of thousands of jobs now in these industrial hubs in Ethiopia. Uh, what are you getting for it? He said, well, an Ethiopian labor in this context is about one-fifth the cost of Chinese labor. And I guess the point I'd make is when you look at how uh, the Chinese Development Bank and the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and the One Belt, One Road policy out of China has created a massive amount of low-cost capital for African development, but also for other Asian communities, and you tie that to these types of examples where the scale of thinking around job creation in the context of your future of work comment is just so large uh, that you know, that feels like an at-scale effort. And you can understand why if you're the prime minister of Ethiopia, you would think that that is a viable and a important part of your development strategy because you got uh, 
the bulk of your population in their 20s, and they need work, and they're going to need work for a long time, and that labor cost differential is going to exist for some time. So, you know, I think the, the lesson for us is these larger public sector strategies around job creation and the future of work are going to be fairly dominant in how countries grow. And uh, instead of doing kind of specific projects, being a big part of that policy and political dialogue is one path to having that scale impact. So staying in Africa, but expanding yeah. out a little bit from there, um, something that, that you and I have spent a lot of time talking about, uh, there's a lot of fragility concentrated in Africa. There's a lot of the world's remaining or soon to be remaining extreme poverty concentrated in Africa. How do we work on that challenge when you have some countries that are clearly stepping forward and doing the right things and others that seem to be stuck? Well, you have a lot of expertise on that question, so you, you are going to have to add to the answer or just flat out answer it. And, and ODI has done excellent work on bridging the divide between humanitarian action and, and uh, work in fragile states. Uh, I was, I've been here for a couple of days in London speaking to one of uh, my Uber drivers who was from Mogadishu and in Somalia, and I explained how uh, I had the chance to visit there uh, during uh, my tenure in the Obama administration. And the reality is, you know, there were points in time when uh, Somalia, as an example of one fragile state, had a had a new president, new government, a semblance of security, uh, not just at the airport, but maybe more broadly around the city. And there was an opportunity to act as a global community to really help that country get on its own two feet. And I remember uh, the UK in particular leading the donor conferences on Somalia. I think you probably went. <laughs> and uh, everybody committed resources. And then, to be honest, on the ground, very little happened. Like, there were a lot of great conversations about World Bank trust funds and other kinds of activities, a lot of wonderful planning, but not a lot of action on the ground. And we saw that in Libya after the fall of Gaddafi. We saw that in many parts of uh, Afghanistan, despite a pretty big international effort. We saw that in Haiti after the earthquake. And I think the challenge of an institution like the Overseas Development Institute or the Development Enterprise is going to be much, much, much more focused on those types of settings than it is on stable, reasonably well-governed settings that are growing at 8 or 9% a year anyway. Uh, and I would argue that our institutions designed after World War II at a Bretton Woods conference in Maryland uh, just are not purpose-built for that goal. And so uh, I don't have a solution, but you know, there, there's obviously a lot of discussion about what can be done. This to me is the critical challenge. If we're going to end extreme poverty, it's going to be in Somalia and northern Nigeria and uh, Yemen and parts of Pakistan, and it's, it's just not going to be in Ghana because Ghana's not going to have a lot of extreme poverty in a decade. Mm. What so, do you think? Well, you, you have been, I'm going to ask you to square a, a circle, a challenging circle. Um, 
Because you've been a big advocate uh, of of making sure that that aid and development spending focuses on results and that we measure those results carefully. Um, and I think at the same time, a lot of the context that we're talking about are not necessarily always high results yeah. <laughs> uh, environments. Where well, no, I, I disagree. Okay. I remember when you highlighted the demographic and health survey out of Afghanistan, right, that showed in an extraordinarily poor country in a place with an extreme amount of continued violence. Uh, we had the fastest reductions in maternal and child mortality anywhere in the world from, what, 2002 to 2012. And that happened because of a concerted effort to take basic health services from something like 9% access to 65% access, right? Yeah. So if you can do that in Afghanistan in that setting, why, is, why do we always have to say that, oh, you cannot be results-oriented in Somalia or Yemen or something like that? I just, we have to, I think we have to figure out how to do our work better and be rigorous about results. And frankly, even more so in fragile settings where corruption's a bigger risk, where uh, you know, you've lived through some extraordinary examples of that. Uh, Not personally, just, uh, <laughs> just to clarify for the audience. I have yeah. lived through them, but I was not the you, You've lived through President Obama saying, go do something <laughs> yeah. about it. Right, right. So, so uh, but, but it's a challenge we can solve. One of the, uh, one of my final experiences as USAID administrator was leading the <laughs> Ebola response in West Africa. And, you know, here's a, a, a disease uh, that frankly, uh, believe it or not, it was very, it, w it caused a high rate of mortality in a population when infected, but otherwise it was not a particularly scary pandemic. It was not transmitted via air. It was not uh, particularly rapid in its transmission and its mutation rate and all of that. Uh, but nevertheless, it led to 30,000 infections and 11,000 deaths uh, because it transpired in three countries that were broken countries. And, uh, you know, Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia basically had very weak public health systems to begin with. And then the first thing that happened were health workers who were on the front line of taking care of people sick with Ebola perished themselves in the summer of 2014, so that by the time you got to August or September, it was spreading in an uncontrolled manner. So much so that almost all of the international NGOs and health institutions that would do something about it uh, were not immediately able to mobilize and be present as first responders on the ground in these settings because they were worried about getting infected and, and uh, putting their staff at undue risk uh, in that context. That's just one example. If we're not prepared to deal with a pandemic threat in a place like Liberia or Sierra Leone, uh, we're certainly not prepared to deal with a famine at scale in Yemen, uh, or, or which is you know, happening as we speak, and we're certainly not well constructed to deal with the extraordinary violence taking place uh, coupled with a famine in South Sudan. And, uh, We've sat with military leaders who've had, who kept coming to people in the development community and said, well, why, don't, why isn't there a better solution? Why is the solution always, we're going to ask Oxfam and Mercy Corps to go into a place where people are shooting at each other to prevent something from happening? And 
we love and care about Oxfam and Mercy Corps and want them to be successful, but the, probably, the time has probably come from a, for a much more aggressive capacity to respond in some of these very tough settings. Hmm. So let me ask you one or two more questions and we'll go to the audience, but, but on that, you know, I mean, we are facing a moment of four famines or potential famines. Uh, you still have the seemingly never-ending Syria crisis and all of the challenges that that is creating. Um, you know, the United States, along with the UK and others, have consistently led the world in humanitarian response, and it ain't getting any easier. Um, uh, just last week, uh, Mark Green, uh, who was uh, is President Trump's uh, appointee for USAID, uh, stepped into your old office. Uh, what are your recommendations for him? First, just specifically on how to handle um, what seems at the moment to be an extraordinary number of crises in a moment when budgets are going down. Well, I, I think, first I want to say I'm a, a friend of Mark's and he's a friend of mine. I'm very, very excited that someone who cares about and knows about and is committed to the mission of development and humanitarian leadership is at the helm of USAID in this administration. If we uh, could have designed this you know, the day after the election, you couldn't do any better than Mark Green. So, uh, so we, it's, it's all of our combined task to help him out. Um, I do hope he stays strong because unlike the working environment you and I had, I don't think he's entering an NSC principles table with everybody saying, how can we help you? And, uh, but I'll just say, the first time I actually was in an NSC was the day after, with the day of the Haiti earthquake, and it was the president, the head of the table, saying, okay, we're going to go around the table, and everyone's going to talk about how they help USAID lead a coordinated response and do it uh, with the no-excuses mindset, right? So I, you never know. You never know. Mark could be very successful, and I think we have to hope and pray for that. Uh, the other advice I'd have for him would be like, go back in there and ask for a new budget, right? He just got appointed. He should go in and say, you do not want to be the president who on your watch let uh, hundreds of thousands of children starve and led to dismantling health programs that have extraordinary bipartisan support. You know, our Congress has not been known for civility or uh, friendship and certainly not bipartisan action over the last decade. Its approval rating today, I think, is 9%. And when we were in government, its uh, approval rating was the sky-high low teens. And uh, in that environment, the, they passed uh, major legislation to continue the president's AIDS program. On a bipartisan basis, uh, greatly expanded investments in global immunization, announcements we made right here at the Queen Elizabeth II Conference Center with Prime Minister Cameron and, and, and your colleagues in the British government. Uh, they passed the food, Global Food Security Act, which is the second largest American piece of legislation on global development since uh, PEPFAR was passed. Passed Electrify Africa. All of this on a bipartisan basis. So uh, I think going in and saying, let's rethink what we've been doing, given that there is this immediate crisis, given that we know the cuts in these programs will lead to real and immediate loss of life. And given that the last thing you want to be doing is kind of sending troops or having to deal with sending troops into the places you'd rather not have to deal with in a military context, 
let's use our aid more aggressively in this context and just rethink the policy we've put forth. Uh, you know, I don't know what he's going to do, but that would be my first word of advice. Yeah, and on the, on the broader opportunity, that's, that description is a good one. It's a lot of fighting rearguard actions to protect where things are. Um, what do you think could be done? And, and maybe I'll open this up to uh, Priti Patel here, who's the minister for, for DFID. What, you know, given the still critical role that the United States and the United Kingdom can play on the big vision for international investment and aid, what should they be looking at in the next couple of years? Well, I, look, I think the reality is uh, we're fighting it from a defensive position, right? It's the stated policy, at least of the U.S. government now, to largely get out of the business of foreign assistance and, and aid. Uh, so I, I don't know that I'd be hugely ambitious. I would use the moment as one of reform. Uh, I'd point out that, that the most aggressive uh, country that is using its uh, soft power to expand its spheres of influence around the world is China. And the Chinese institutions like the Chinese Development Bank and the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank are now larger in their global outlays in developing countries than the World Bank Group. Uh, and you know, if you're making a bet 20 years out, unless there are some new partnerships with those Chinese institutions, I think the Bretton Woods institutions will be less important uh, without that. So I, I would frame it in that context and, and just make the point that we got to rethink how we're doing this work make it more about trade and investment, make it more about results in fragile states and, and national security hotspots, uh, do the work with philanthropic institutions like the Gates Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation and uh, the partners in the Giving Pledge community that want to, to use their private capital to make the world a better place and give people the opportunity to, to save lives in places that matter at an, in an efficient way and thereby make the world safer. I, I actually think we, we succeeded at building a bipartisan community of, and bipartisan political support by getting faith institutions and corporate leaders, conservative uh, members of Congress, and uh, student groups all across the country deeply engaged in the politics of aid and assistance. And I think we need a little bit of revitalizing that thinking both here in the, U in the UK and certainly in the United States. Great. So I'm going to go uh, and open up to the audience for questions. Please raise your hand. Someone will bring you a microphone. Uh, wait for the microphone, uh, because uh, that will allow us to record you. Uh, and I'll, I'll take a couple of questions, and then come back to Raj, and we'll go back and forth. It looks like we've got some online questions as well. So uh, why don't you start with this woman here? And if you would say your name and your affiliation as well, thanks. Obviously, the microphone doesn't want your question. Uh, I'm just kidding. Do, do, do we have a second working mic? We do. Uh, all right, we'll just shout it out, and we'll, okay. we'll fix out, we'll fix the... the Is it working? Oh. Hello? Yay. Okay. All right. <laughs> Sorry. Take it back. Um, Don't shout it. <laughs> okay. So, um, 
Uh, earlier, you mentioned how uh, you need to bring along the people who voted for Brexit and for Trump. And just now you were talking about student groups and uh, church groups and so on. So I was wondering what you believe, whether you believe that the Rockefeller Foundation has a role in, in doing that. You want me to take one more? You want to? Yeah, sure. Okay, great. And then uh, the gentleman behind here will kind of move across the room here. Uh, thank you. Uh, Rupert Simons from Publish What You Fund. Um, Welcome to London. Um, Thank uh, thanks for coming, even though we're on the verge of leaving the international community ourselves. <laughs> uh, I wanted to uh, ask a question about a speech you gave a few, uh, a few weeks ago where you said the Rockefeller Foundation will be getting back into science, technology, and data in a big way. Uh, so as a big proponent and enthusiast of data publication, data use, that sounds great. Curious if you could expand on what you mean by getting back into data in a big way, where you think the data revolution is going, and please tell me it's not just blockchain. Thank you. <laughs> well, those are both good questions. Let me, let me tackle the first. I do think it's uh, anyone doing philanthropic work has to be engaged in building public consensus and uh, doing the educational and advocacy work to help people see how they can participate in this mission. And I've had the benefit of, you know, I've sat in a church in inner city Detroit. I grew up around Detroit and, you know, a community that down on its luck every week takes a collection for an orphanage in Rwanda. And I've seen uh, farmers in Fort Benton, Montana, and we've sat around the table and talked about our, at the time we were launching a program we called Feed the Future to help millions of small scale farmers around the world. And, and I, concluded that by saying, can you call your members of Congress and tell them you support these kinds of efforts? Because they really did. They thought, they said, we're food producers. We understand what it means to be a farmer. We want to help others. We feel blessed and we want to help others. So I, I think doing that political work is, is really important. And too often in this community, we get excited about uh, you know, the data that comes out of our projects and how we publish it and talk to each other. And we don't talk enough to folks just about the common values that this work represents. Uh, and so, yeah, it's part of our mission to take that on. And we're going to do more to ensure that different types of communities inside the United States in particular are aware of and uh, have the ability to advocate for the kinds of priorities we believe are important. On the data question, I'll just give you a story. On that same trip to Nairobi and, and Ethiopia, we were in Uganda. And we were talking to uh, entrepreneurs who had created these off-grid solar businesses uh, and offering power to, I think, 6,000 homes in northern Uganda. And I said, well, what's, what's the most interesting thing that's happened to you in the last year? And they said, both Facebook and Google have offer, offered us money for access to our data. And you know, at the end of the day, uh, collecting data and having information on the consumer behavior, the power consumption, the incidence of disease, the epidemiological spread of certain pathogens, all of that is going to become a bigger and bigger part of allowing us to be uh, more effective at tackling these problems. And if you believe, as I think many do, that are operating in a more tech-savvy environment, that uh, large-scale data collection combined with machine learning will offer a new set of tools that, 
greatly enhance the efficiency and efficacy of this work. I think we want to really understand that and be a part of it, be a trusted partner so that not all of the data on the world's emerging uh, populations or the current world's poor sit in the hands of, in private hands, uh, but it really become a public good that can be leveraged to drive our goals of ending poverty and ending under five child death and ending hunger and, and malnutrition as we know it. So in many ways, it's a super exciting time to be in this business. Blockchain is exciting, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but it's not the only thing that's exciting. Uh, in that context, and you know, that's also why we're so excited about this effort Olivia's leading around collaborative philanthropy, because if we can get some of the people who really understand how to build these data tools to adopt as their mission, uh, you know, bringing identity to people and then using uh, those systems to ensure better access to benefits and services, uh, we can make an even bigger difference in achieving our goals. That's great. Um, I'm going to ask this gentleman up front, and then I, I have an qu interesting question from online. Uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Hallelujah. I'm from Ethiopia, but I, I study at uh, LAC. Oh, great. Uh, thanks. <laughs> uh, my question is, uh, I know it's a classic challenge, uh, but recently the, uh, 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 the uh, Rex Tillerson, he said, uh, if I get it right, I think democracy and human rights won't be on the top of the agenda of U.S.'s foreign relations. Um, and uh, the message that has been coming out of the White House hasn't been any different as well. And it has been a very, I mean, it's always a delicate balance and it's a, it's an, I mean, it's, it's a very uh, controversial issue. But from, from the perspective of development, uh, humanitarian interventions in philanthropy, uh, as former head of the USAID and now as head of the, you know, the uh, Rockefeller Foundation. How do uh, organizations like the USAID or, uh, you know, the Rockefeller Foundation combine their development work with issues of human rights and democracy? Because I felt like I'm at one piece that was missing from this presentation in this conversation because the last point that I'm, 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 I'm trying to make is, of course, you know Ethiopia very well, and you've known Mel as well, I think, as well. Um, there were some impressive developments and progress mm -hmm. in Ethiopia, for example, in, the, in, in uh, education, health, infrastructure. But because of the, that gap, I mean, uh, we, we've had a lot of political instability, and people have been destroying these very institutions that are delivering these services. So how do, you know, uh, philanthropists, international organizations trying to address yeah, this great. classical challenge. Thanks for that question. And let me ask one other easy one <laughs> while you're at it. Um, uh, this comes in part from uh, Belinda Dotson from Western University in Canada, uh, wants to hear your thoughts on, uh, on gender equality and migration. And let me just expand it a little bit. Um, you know, obviously a lot of the things that we've been talking about uh, will depend uh, on gender equality if they're ever going to come to fruition. Uh, the end of extreme poverty, questions about work and fair work, uh, all of these issues. Um, and we're still a long ways away. Um, so I'm kind of curious to hear some of your thoughts on where you see the potential for progress and is that something that Rockefeller focuses on? So two, Great. two easy questions. 
Well, thank you. The, to the first question on, on human rights and democracy, and, and I think you quoted uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. To me, the things he said are, I mean, if they're true, they're disastrous. And even worse than his words are uh, the example that our own president is setting, right? Like, I, I have sitting, I've sat in the room with more than one leader on more than one continent and made the point that, you know, your, your daughter or your son-in-law shouldn't have undue access to your public uh, government systems uh, because that's not considered appropriate governance in, in this day and age. So, look, and I, I, don't, I just mean, I don't mean that in a personal way against anyone in the U.S. government. I just mean the example we set and the power of that example is hugely important. And when President Obama would travel and meet with leaders, the power of his example allowed all these civil society groups in Ethiopia and Senegal and Kenya and Afghanistan and uh, Honduras to stand together and say, there's a North Star here, and we're not going to get there right away, but we're going to wake up every day and fight for what, our, what is right when it comes to democracy, democratic governance, and uh, and transparency in government. And I think it's harder to do if, if America fails to live up to that, uh, its role as the world's example of striving to improve our democratic processes and standing for democracy and human rights in our foreign policy. We haven't always gotten it right, as you know. And uh, in many settings, it's harder to, you, you advocate for things, but you also have to do uh, you have to, you know, have a multifaceted approach to your diplomacy so that you're engaging on things even as you're advocating for other things and, and not making as much progress. But the idea that we're just going to stop advocating for human rights, for democracy, for uh, gender equality, uh, for domestic resource mobilization and taxation, for anti-corruption, for anti-nepotism, all these things that are the bedrock of values that animate American foreign policy, uh, I think is a disaster. And it's going to take us all backwards. And it's why so many people are leaving the Foreign Service in the United States right now. Uh, that's, that said, your question was really about the Rockefeller Foundation and what might we do. And I think we're looking at some things uh, that we can do. And we see lots of opportunities for philanthropic partners to come together and help bring transparency and visibility in particular uh, to certain types of uh, behaviors we're seeing in, in country after country and have had a history of doing that type of work as well. On gender, I, the things that the Rockefeller Foundation has focused on for a very long time, food security, global health outcomes, under five child survival, uh, fair and equitable or, or reasonable work and access to jobs in, in certain and livelihoods and settings, have all disproportionately been about are you helping women be better and more effective in carrying out those roles, right? A, a woman getting a dollar of income is much more likely to transmit that dollar into welfare improvements for her family, into kids going to school, into communities rising out of poverty than that same dollar of income going to men. So we will continue in all those areas of work to stay super focused on ensuring that our, the benefits of our work accrue to women. What, one project 
is an example of that. It's called the Alliance for a Green Revolution for Africa. It's an African-led institution that Rockefeller and Gates started in 2006, uh, but now is a large-scale public partnership. And they work with women scientists, women farmers, and have an understanding that 70-plus percent of farm labor is actually done by women. And so up and down the leadership change, they have women in those roles, and, and the investment focuses very much on women farmers. Uh, that, I think, is an example of getting it right. There are, unfortunately, lots of examples of not getting it right. And one tragic one that I'm still haunted by is in our humanitarian responses, um, I still think we undervalue how important protection of women is, and I don't understand how so many years after this has been so visible, we don't have the ability to put basic lighting and safety systems in uh, refugee and migratory camps that are serving populations that are displaced, because that's where violence against women is, is extraordinarily high. Uh, but that, that's one example of, of things we need to do better in order to really live up to the rhetoric around women and girls in this work. And let's be clear that the current federal policy in the United States is going to move a lot of money away from groups that care a lot about gender outcomes in the context of the fight on poverty. Mm. So um, oh, right, right here, and then gentlemen across the aisle as we creep across. Yeah, we've. Hi, um, my name is Erica. I'm also um, an LSE master's student. Um, and my question relates to the Ebola response and you had referenced that healthcare in those countries was lacking before Ebola happened. And I think that um, a big criticism of the response has been that after it ended, uh, those healthcare facilities that had come just for the response had been anticipated. Um, and I think that part of that is kind of a result of this results-based philanthropy because it disincentivizes more of the long-term goals in favor of short-term response that we can measure results and we can have a real impact for. So now as a philanthropist, how do you think we overcome that kind of short-term vision of needing to get immediate responses and not looking towards prevention that may not have a measurable response at all? They're doing a good job of picking students at LSE, apparently. <laughs> uh, and this gentleman right here, Mike. Oh, uh, oh that's okay. That one's not working. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, my name is Murtaza Okera. Firstly, um, I'd like to thank you for coming and thank you for organizing as well. Um, yes, I'm a student at uh, King's College London, doing a master's in disasters adaptation and development. Now, my question is more towards looking at the world problem that really preoccupies uh, human thought, and that is of uh, the social system. And uh, when it comes to understanding which social system is good for us human beings in, 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 in the sense of it, it being a happy social system, and if we go towards, say, understanding, say, yes, this uh, capitalistic democratic system is fantastic, then what is Rockefeller doing in bringing about individual rights and social rights in, in, in bringing this balance where, um, where we see current, large, private, or even individual actors um, that may be a source uh, for exploitation of social rights and therefore reform initiatives in its mm -hmm. core or in its essence are 
or may not truly save lives uh, and not tackle the root causes of climate and mm -hmm. poverty issues. Mm -hmm. And that, I don't. That's know. an excellent so, question. I'll, I'll let me do the Ebola one first, and then yeah. I'll try to close on that. Thank you. On the on Ebola, you know, I don't, I'm not sure I fully agree that being results oriented means you have to be short term in focus. Uh, we were running the response in Liberia, for example, and uh, one of the things we found was a group called Global Communities that had built a lot of long-term presence and connectivity in rural communities uh, by asking questions, speaking to uh, people living in the villages that were affected, had started to understand that it was really even more than person-to-person -person contact with a, with a live patient, it was the, the burial practices and the cultural practices around washing and treating uh, and honoring the bodies of the deceased that were accounting for almost 70% of transmission. And because they had that results-oriented mindset, said we wanna, we wanna find what is the largest source of transmission and tackle that. And then they came up together with the WHO and others with kind of innovative ways to put a burial team together. And you might have seen photos of their fully masked teams that would go into communities and uh, in, an, in an honorable way work with community leaders to get access to the bodies and, and remove them in a dignified way uh, so that they were not sources of further transmission. And the same effort was then sort of tried, the, in Sierra Leone, DFID tried to do the same thing because it was working and uh, sent a team, I think, from the UK. But because they didn't have the long history of working in those communities, uh, they were seen as just people wearing masks, right? And, and people said, no, I don't want to give my father or my mother or my brother or my sister to you after they're deceased because we don't trust you. And that kind of local community trust, whether it's through community health workers that have a track record of working in a community, or in this case, this social development group called Global Communities that had a long track record of delivering results for families in those villages, uh, that contributes to being much more efficient in then achieving the outcome you're seeking, whether it's a community health outcome or a pandemic prevention outcome or anything else. So, Look, sometimes people are, are too focused on the short term and the processes of forcing groups to get data back to funding institutions like Rockefeller or USAID uh, don't help with that. Uh, but we need to find a way to be results oriented and understand that building long term community trust and community contacts is a part of getting the result efficiently and, and not the problem. Uh, on, the, on the other question, uh, that, that's a big question about the future of capitalism and uh, about how we think about understanding the distribution and of, of wealth and power in our societies. I spent a lot of time uh, you know, thinking that that challenge was maybe outside of the scope of what we could achieve with results-oriented development programs at places like USAID. But, I'll tell you, after this last election and, and looking at the data, you're onto something. And the reality is, in, in the United States, it's you know, white men of a certain age group that, are ha that have had the largest and only 
actual increase in mortality rates and decrease in longevity in the post-World War II era because of the opioid crisis and, and other challenges they experienced that are fundamentally tied to a sense of communities fraying and people being left behind. Uh, there's an economist out of Stanford named Rod Shetty that has done incredible work. Uh, and if you look at the work, it says, if you were born in the United States, if you were born in 1940 or 1950 or 1960, ironically, unless your last name was Rockefeller, you were, you were more than likely to do better economically than your parents. And that reality uh, animated a lot of the optimism that allowed America to be a great country abroad, that allowed us to be the world's humanitarian leader, allowed us to be proud as an example. It was the reason so many immigrants came to the U.S. to chase that American dream. If you're born in 1980, it's the first post-World War II cohort in the United States population where you are statistically more likely to do worse than your parents. And, and it's not just if your parents are Rockefellers, now it's if your parents are all the way down the economic spectrum. And I think unless we understand in our country that the needs of, uh, that we need to build an economy that's really inclusive of everyone, that the, I met a girl in New Orleans during my visit in our 100RC program, and Mayor Mitch Landrieu asked her, said, well, tell Raj how many, tell him about the violence in the community you grew up in. How many of your friends had been shot or killed during your childhood? She's 21, and, and, and she, said, uh, she said more than two dozen, more than 20, more than two dozen. And then we were in, you know, we see in our work in more rural communities, uh, people feeling left out and left behind and these huge upticks in uh, drug use and drug addiction in the United States that's clearly related to econ economies and communities falling apart because of a lack of identity and, and other economic challenges. Uh, these issues matter. And so I don't know the answer, but it, certainly it's part of our mission at the Rockefeller Foundation to work on inclusive growth. On a global basis, we think that's a lot about energy poverty. Domestically, we're looking at what can we do to contribute to building an economy that's fair and has more access and can genuinely rebuild an American dream and a pathway to an American dream for a greater proportion of our people. And I think that's, it's important if you're working on development and if you're gonna tackle all the things Alex mentioned as the political challenges we face today to realize we got to bring everyone along, and that starts with making everyone feel confident about their future. Too many Americans don't feel that way today, and I think that's part of why we have uh, the situation we have. So, Raj, you've been incredibly generous with your time, uh, and I want all of these good people to walk out here a little bit happier than they are right now. <laughs> uh, and we're going to fix some of that with wine and food outside. Uh, but let me just ask you one last yeah. question. Uh, you know, you have been doing this work every hour of your waking life, at least as far as I see. Uh, but you, you know, wake up every morning inspired to keep doing it. What, what is it that inspires you every day? Well, the biggest thing that inspires me every day is despite all the noise and all the negativity, we've talked a lot about the politics today, uh, we're actually winning <laughs> the big fight. 
And if we do the right things and we invest in the right innovation and we pick the right partners and we build the right partnerships and collaborations, we can actually end child death as we know it around the world. We can bring in and usher in a new way of producing protein and micronutrients and getting it to kids so that the huge rates of stunting and malnutrition that hold people back go way, way down. Uh, our capacity, you asked the question about data, but our capacity to kind of pinpoint and target and understand which households are most requiring of support, coupled with technology that does give everybody a biometric identity that allows every citizen to be heard, that gives the right kind of leaders the capacity to remove hundreds of thousands of ghost workers off the books in certain countries. Uh, all of those tools and all of that capability will help us succeed at ending extreme poverty and will help us succeed at building a world where kids don't die of simple diseases and ultimately will help us do that despite the challenges of climate and despite part of the challenges of politics. And frankly, I think just as we've seen this current politics be a reaction to the last era, I think there's going to be a reaction to this one. Because certainly in our country, in the US, when people see what's going on, uh, they might be angry, they may feel left out, they may feel uh, like they haven't been listened to, but they have values, and they care, and they care about others. And I think it's just a matter of time before we're kind of back to our more traditional role of being a nation and a foreign policy that at least tries to embed values of human rights and decency and development in everything we do. Well, as my grandmother used to said, say, from your mouth to God's ears, <laughs> uh, 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 it's been a great pleasure and honor having you here. I really thank all of you uh, for coming out tonight on an August night uh, to listen to Raj. Uh, it's been a real pleasure for me as well. Um, we have had a longstanding partnership uh, with the Rockefeller Foundation on a variety of the issues that Raj has talked about. Um, and a lot of great work that I encourage you to go look up uh, online that speaks uh, in depth to some of the challenges that, that Raj has outlined. So thanks again for being here. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Thank you.